Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of Marine Corps University. Today, we're discussing Command and Staff College's upcoming Arctic Symposium. My guests today are Colonel Brian Cole, Lieutenant Colonel Jorn Kviller, and Dr. Lon Strauss. Colonel Cole is the Marine Corps Reserve Chair here at Marine Corps University, as well as a Joint Warfare Course Director for the Marine Corps War College. He came to us as a branch head for DC Aviation and has previously served as faculty on the Joint Forces Staff College. Lieutenant Colonel Kviller is a Norwegian infantry officer, military faculty at the Command and Staff College, and co-teacher of the CSE Arctic Security and Cold Weather Operations elective with Dr. Strauss. His previous command was as battalion commander of the Norwegian Army Border Guard with the Norwegian-Russia border. Dr. Lon Strauss is the newly promoted faculty at MCU. He is now an associate professor of military history in the War Studies Department at Command and Staff College, and we are so delighted for his well-earned promotion. He's previously served as visiting professor at the U.S. Army War College and is co-author of War, Interdisciplinary Perspectives on Armed Conflict Around the World, along with several articles and chapters, and he's presented his research at various scholarly conferences around the U.S. and internationally. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Before we start our discussion today, can you give our listeners some background on what you see as the critical issues in the Arctic from a strategic perspective? And Dr. Strauss, I'll turn it over to you first. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting us. I'm really excited to participate in this uh, podcast and also very excited to talk about the Arctic and the Arctic Symposium uh, that we're going to be hosting here at uh, Marine Corps University. So you kick us off with a, a really great question, strategic issues and concerns of the Arctic today, of which I think that there's many. On the one hand, I think from a strategic perspective, uh, we have to look at the regional actors within the Arctic, being those uh, Russia, Norway, Sweden, Finland, kick it over to uh, Canada, the U.S. and Alaska. Uh, we had a discussion before we started this podcast about the, the UK and, and Iceland and, and so on, and kind of the the status or the status quo that has been the Arctic of somewhat of a collaborative, somewhat of a, a collaborative region versus what we're trending toward or we think we're trending toward, which is a change in ice flow related to climate change, the two passages in the Arctic, the, the Northwest and the Northeast Passage, which again run very close to uh, both Russia and say Canada, uh, respectively, the issues of territorial waters versus an economic exclusive zone versus international waters and what that means for free trade. So I, I think those are major issues along with the question of opening up of possible resources the cost of reaching those resources, the effort to reach those resources. And, and again, what I just mentioned before of kind of who owns those, if anybody, uh, all of those are major strategic concerns, which you lay that on top of concerns regarding, say, international actors or larger strategic competition underneath that great power competition between the United States, Russia, and China, and how actions outside of the Arctic might possibly begin influencing those relationships in the Arctic. Uh, and again, this is just a very general overview, right, of some strategic concerns 
that I think are influencing the Arctic, uh, which we could certainly discuss more. And I, I'd open it up to to Colonel Cole if he wanted to to add anything in that. If I if I missed anything. Well, I would say you certainly didn't miss anything, but clearly the the Arctic is of strategic importance, especially in the context of strategic competition. When you look at Russia, you know the Arctic is extremely strategically important to Russia. But I think one of the nuances about strategic competition and the Arctic is that it's not a lawless frontier. You know, there's been a lot of talk about a, you know, a, assumptions about a new Cold War, but the conditions are clearly different from the Cold War than they are today. And, and one of the reasons that we study this, at least in the War College, is to understand that those, what those differences are so that we can make better assumptions as we're developing our strategies and policies. Clearly, as I mentioned, the, the Arctic is strategically important to Russia in terms of natural resources, like, like Dr. Strauss has mentioned. You consider the size of the cities that, that are in the Russian Arctic. I mean, there's two, 300,000 plus cities in the Arctic, whereas in North America, I think the largest city in the Arctic is 17,000 people. So, you know, there's, there's large amounts of infrastructure. Energy is a key player for the Arctic. But then also Russia asserting its new do its dominance in the region is clearly uh, impacting how we see the Arctic and strategic competition. And then China and, the Ar and Russia are partnering uh, in ways in which they can balance against the U.S. as well. So there are uh, a lot of uh, issues that we need to uh, address there. So Lieutenant Colonel Kviller, we have uh, welcomed a longstanding relationship at Marine Corps University with having our sole international military faculty member coming from Norway. And so we have worked with your predecessors for well over a decade at this point and, and know that our students and our faculty are better for this partnership we have at the university level. But can you please talk with our listeners about the significance of the U.S.-Norwegian partnership at the strategic level as it relates to this question of Arctic security? Yeah, so first first of all, uh, thank you, ma'am, for, for having me on uh, your podcast and uh, the possibility to talk, uh, to talk about the Arctic um, Security Symposium. And to, to comment on the, the long history that we have at the university, um, I think we have a history uh, at MCU going back to the 50s, 60s. So we have had students here since the 50s and, and also part of the faculties, faculty uh, for nearly 30 years now. So the cooperation and the, uh, the uh, close partnership with the U.S. and Norway is, of course, critical for, for Norway. And I think we have a, a lot of common interests. Of course, we have Russia as a, being a, a common competitor uh, and a possible threat to both countries. And um, for Norway, being a small state, it's important to have uh, a big friend uh, like the U.S. Of course, we are a NATO member, but uh, it's important to have um, also a, a very good bilateral uh, cooperation and a partnership with the U.S. in relations to, to Russia. Norway, uh, we are placed very uh, strategically. Uh, we are uh, placed like a key maritime terrain and can provide um, 
key intel to to the U.S. Uh, because we are there where we are. And if you are looking at the new EABO concept that the Marine Corps is developing, our whole, whole armed forces is like a stand-in force, uh, which is a term that is used in the EABO concept. And of course, we provide um, critical knowledge about how to operate in the Arctic. And we do that by training Marines that uh, do exercises and training uh, in Norway. We have, of course, a pragmatic relationship to Russia. We have a land border to Russia. That was my previous uh, command, as you talked about initially, dealing with, with Russia on day-to-day basis. And through that could uh, could be a, a important de-escalator uh, when uh, escalation is happening. And, and that, of course, uh, some of the concerns uh, Norway has in this region. And Norway is trying to um, do a, a delicate balance between deterrence uh, like having U.S. as a, as a good friend and being a, a NATO partner, but also be a predictable uh, neighbor uh, to Russia and, and assuring Russia that we have no offensive or, or aggressive strategy or, or um, thoughts behind what we are doing. So I think this, both we are balancing each other in the, in the friendship between U.S. and Norway, but also uh, a provide key knowledge and capabilities to each other. So how did the Arctic Symposium come about? Was this a a group effort among the the folks who were here at MCU? Did the initiative come from the Norwegian military? What brought us to this two-day conference that is coming up? When this episode airs, it'll be tomorrow uh, and the next day. And then what are some of the key themes that individuals who might watch the conference or listen in that they might expect to hear? So this started really by an initiative uh, by Dr. Njord Vegge, who is uh, part of the the organizers, uh, and he is um, working at the Norwegian Defense University College. And he reached out to MCU uh, to get uh, some scholars over here to write about the Marine Corps' role in the Arctic. And Dr. Strauss, he, uh, he said yes after some convincing. And also through that dialogue, we were talking about a, a possible symposium or a, a seminar, either going uh, in Norway or in the U.S. And we're also talking about Marine Corps versus the Army and uh, ended up here at MCU. And I'm very, I'm very happy for that. But at the same time, so that's the easy answer. But the longer answer is that there were several initiatives and discussions going on at the same time that came together. So um, we have some, some smaller initiatives here at the university. Uh, we have the, the elective cold weather operations and Arctic security here at uh, Commander Staff College, which uh, um, uh, Dr. Strauss and myself uh, are running. Colonel Cole has his initiative over at the War College, and, and Colonel Cole and I, we um, started discussing about a, a possible initiative here at MCU, we call that uh, Arctic Strategic Initiative. So that also is part of the uh, influence here. And of course, all the service doctrines that have been published about Arctic strategy. And in January this year, the uh, Secretary of the Navy issued the, the Blue Arctic Strategy or the Strategic Blueprint for the Arctic which we didn't hear much about uh, within the Marine Corps uh, and not discussed at all at, at MCU, at least not at Command Staff College. 
that was something we thought should be given more more space. And of course, we have this whole development in the Marine Corps now with Force Design 2030, EABO, very focused on China and, and South China Sea. And of course, the discussion we have had is, okay, how does this apply to the Arctic? Is it is it doable? Uh, what is the difference between South China Sea and China versus a scenario with Russia, uh, Norway, or another place in the Arctic? Uh, all of those have been been part of the discussion leading towards uh, this symposium, I think. Yeah, so Jern did a, a really good job of covering down on just about everything. Um, so uh, let me emphasize a couple of, a couple of things there that that he mentioned. We cannot emphasize enough uh, Njord Vega. Uh, this is really uh, his initiative in putting together a uh, a special edition of the Arctic Review on Law and Politics that should be coming out, if not the end of this year, uh, early next year. A bunch of international scholars who are writing on the Arctic. And as Jern said, he contacted through Jern, they wanted someone from MCU to write an article on Marines in the Arctic, which is, uh, I'll be upfront, not my area, definitely not my area of expertise, but... It's always good to learn new things. It is, it is. And I've been learning a lot, (laughs) (laughs) trial by fire. Yeah, so I was really interested, just because we are talking EABO, and we're talking Force Design 2030 so much, it's hard not to talk about those without the focus of the Indo-Pacific and the focus specifically on, on China that it raised a lot of questions about uh, the Marine Corps and the U.S.'s obligations uh, and contributions elsewhere in the world. And the Arctic, uh, specifically because of this project, seemed like a a great entry point in seeing kind of how uh, EABO and Force Design 2030 fit outside of the the Indo-Pacific. So uh, Nyrd was really pushing to to do a symposium here in the U.S. Of course, he needed someone in the U.S. to partner with him to do it. And he wanted MCU to be that that partner uh, because we've got that long line of Norwegians that have come through MCU, TUMEF of the the Marine Corps, right? Having the uh, Norway specifically, but the, the Arctic region kind of in their AO. So that relationship was there and they wanted to, to build on that relationship. So I was lucky enough or I could use some some other terms to be the one to volunteer uh, to kind of lead the effort on this side of the the Atlantic to get that going. And yeah, so and we're really excited about the the program that that we've put together and uh, how this is how this is going to run. Um, so to get to the the second part of your question, some of the themes that we are going to talk about are the strategic issues. Uh, the strategic documents that that Jern brought up, the Navy's tri-service, its maritime doctrine or strategy, sorry, as well as the, the new Blue Arctic strategy. We see these coming out in the, the other U.S. services. We've seen this discussion in the United States strategically about the Arctic uh, within this context of great power competition. So our first day of the the symposium on uh, the 3rd of November is mostly going to focus on that. And we are going to have some uh, very influential uh, thinkers on that topic come and talk. So we have the Norwegian ambassador to the United States. We have uh, our former ambassador to Norway, who also happens to be the former secretary of the Navy. 
Uh, we also have uh, the deputy commander of TUMEF, who's uh, going to be talking uh, about this. And we have the, the commander of NATO's uh, Joint Warfare Center, which is stationed in Norway. So that's, that's going to be really exciting to have those people speaking about these strategic issues and where the Arctic fits, you know, kind of this, this confluence of, of issues. Uh, the second day of the symposium is going to be more open. Uh, we have several panels running in uh, five different sessions. So uh, I think we've got about nine panels all together. And they run from things uh, like maritime issues in the Arctic to China and Russia's interests uh, in the Arctic. And of course, NATO in the Arctic, as far as like the regional actors, as well as the U.S. working with NATO in the Arctic. And uh, while a lot of it will be militarily focused, uh, there's also quite a bit that's going to talk kind of these strategic issues of uh, freedom of navigation and economics, resources, collaboration and cooperation versus more aggressive stances uh, and, and so on and so forth that go well beyond just military issues. We're really excited to, to kick this off and get a lot of audience participation, which is always the, the best part. Yeah, I think it's a, a blessing and a curse, the, the life we've lived for the last 18 months or so, in that I know originally when planning began for this conference, and it was several months ago, the hope was that we would have something in person here at Warner Hall, and it would be a big event, and the ambassadors could come down, and and we would we might be able to pipe people in if necessary if they couldn't travel from Norway, but it would be a largely a Quantico-focused event, whereas now we're back at a, a health protection level that we're trying to minimize in-person conversations. And so most of this will now, we might still have some individuals here on site, but most of the audience participation is going to be virtual. But the blessing of that is then that more people can participate either real time, not just folks who live here in the national capital region, but my understanding is it's going to go up on our YouTube channel. And so individuals, even if they can't participate in the moment that they can come at a later date and still still learn from the conversations that are going to take place, which I think is is just phenomenal way for us to extend the discussion. Yeah. So the, the main event of the 1300 or one o'clock uh, to three o'clock on uh, the 3rd of November, we'll have most of those VIPs here in uh, Warner Hall with Command and Staff College, uh, where everyone else will be virtual. But the genius behind the planning here, uh, if I do say so myself, <laughs> as the planner, uh, <laughs> was that this this would be mostly virtual just because we weren't sure what things were going to uh, to be like here in November. And we did begin this process whew, last spring uh, is when we started the discussions. And then June and July is when we really got got into the planning scheme of things. So. So, yeah, I, I agree. I think we have over 150 registrants, virtual uh, registrants right now, which is fantastic. And they're international. They're here in the U.S. It's PME. It's academia. We have a, a really eclectic audience that's going to come together for this event. Uh, so, again, I, I'm very excited for the Q&A and the discussions that are going to come out of this. Yeah, me too. I think it's going to be good. Let's come back to the subject of Arctic security during the Cold War, the United States looked at the Arctic as a potential battlefield, and there was a lot of energy, for those of us who are old enough to remember the Cold War period, 
for me, it was more the end of the Cold War period, but still. What lessons should we glean today from our discussions during the Cold War period? And then which of those lessons maybe didn't endure the test of time and might not be relevant in this new context? I, I think that's a great question. It's certainly one that I'm hearing uh, some scholars of the Arctic discussing. The way I like to frame it as a historian is that we're dealing with the same geographic problems uh, that existed, right, historically. The geography hasn't changed a great deal, even with climate change, right? It, it's changing, but it's it's still a lot of the same geographic issues. Militarily, the characteristics of our military problems have certainly changed, just as our economic issues have changed because the climate is changing, right? So the, the character of things are changing, but the the scale has certainly gotten bigger, right? As we see technology has progressed. So to get back to the question of what were strategic concerns and what were military planners certainly thinking of in the 80s, this was a resurgent Soviet fleet that had certainly advanced beyond what the U.S. Navy uh, had because the U.S. Navy, like the rest of the United States, was so focused on Vietnam. And uh, a lot of the ships that they were using were outdated even at that time. Uh, there was a lot of World War II era ships uh, being used in the Vietnam War. So discussions about what is the Navy's role, how big should the Navy be, and then similarly, the Marine Corps. What should the Marine Corps' role be? How big should it be? Does the Marine Corps simply want to be a second land army as they were conducting land operations in Vietnam? All of this should sound familiar. <laughs> I've heard those questions a time or two in the past few years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that there are, there are great lessons to look at as far as understanding the context of, of those questions. At that time, the Soviet Union's bastion defense was one of the main concerns. Part of that was Soviet uh, nuclear submarines that were based out of the Kota Peninsula, which is up, up there in the north. And whether if hostilities started, those submarines would just disperse under the ice in the Arctic, which is still a thing because the ice is still there, right? I mean, it, it may be melting a bit, but there's still this huge Arctic chunk of ice in the middle uh, that shifts, but it doesn't really go anywhere, right? That's still a thing. Would the Navy and, by extension, the Marine Corps conduct operations on the northern flank of Europe and, say, maybe an amphibious operation or a Jafeo, you know, on that uh, the Soviet northern flank to kind of draw forces away from where we all thought the main event would take place, which, which was Europe. Um, so those concerns, I think, are are still valid. Some of the things that are different, one, well, the Marine Corps is thinking differently, right? So moving slightly away from the idea of conducting a Jafeo and an, an amphibious operation in, in this sort of manner. Uh, but two, the Russians are still concerned, just as we are, about the Greenland-Iceland-UK gap. And would, say, from a military perspective, would Russians push out uh, further to inhibit that gap or control the flow of traffic through that gap? Today, uh, there are similar questions to that, but also with missile ranges, right? Because the scale of missile ranges have certainly gotten wider 
and missiles have gotten faster. And right now we're talking about technology that can that can do a lot more. Um, so the issue is still the same. It's just the the types of things, the character of the the weaponry that is certainly different. The the scale of it is different. So I think those are still legitimate concerns uh, for say the Naval Marine Corps team. If Norway uh, was isolated, say, under a Russian weapons engagements zone, if things got hot, Marines aren't stationed in Norway, right? That's uh, the Norwegians have a, have a law. They don't want us there. They, they don't have foreign militaries on their, on their shores, not permanently. So what would the fight to get to Europe look like? And I, and I think that those are some big questions that are happening in these halls today, just as they were happening in the 80s. The scale of things are just different and the character of that technology is different. We're still concerned about the submarines, uh, right? So that's that's still an issue. Do you go get them first before they can get out, right? That's good good naval theory. Uh, get them while they're in port. They're all, they're all stuck there together. They're easy targets, relatively. <laughs> or... Uh, you know, if you can't reach them, then then what other options do you have? What happens when they go into the ice? And we still don't necessarily have technology that can see through everything or see the bottom of the ocean everywhere, right? So, th- so those are still issues, I think, that are relevant for us today. For someone who claims to not be an expert on this topic, I would say you certainly do speak as if you were. Fake it till you make it, right? <laughs> <laughs> it is my motto in life. Yes. <laughs> Colonel Cole? Yes, thanks. Uh, and Dr. Strauss, yeah, you're very well informed. We'll, we'll all learn a lot from you. But I get a lot of questions, and I know that you do over at the Command Staff College, too, from students more and more curious about you know, security issues with the Arctic or strategic issues, which is one of the reasons we developed an Arctic security seminar at the War College as well. One of the things about, you know, looking at the Cold War, maybe as a similarities or in contrast to it, there's no doubt that the Cold War shaped the strategic environment of the Arctic today. And specifically, I mean, a lot of things that Dr. Strauss talked about. One is, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, which obviously impacted uh, geopolitics massively, but also Russia. Tremendously. And so throughout all of this, Russia really did its best to maintain its strategic nuclear submarine force, which, as Dr. Strauss mentioned, is, at, is, is housed at the Kola Peninsula. That gives Russia its second strike deterrence capability. So that is critical to Russia. But actual like fighting over territory in the Russia you know, or in the Arctic, maybe not necessarily the thing that is that uh, is driving a lot of the security issues now, just like during the Cold War, it was a strategic theater of intercontinental ballistic missiles. But as as we see now, Russia, this resurgence of Russia, you know, Russia looks is intent on reestablishing its its uh, military power in the Arctic, and it can do so unobstructed right? because it has it, the most capability and uh, to operate in the Arctic and has the growing capacity to operate in the Arctic as well. So I think outside of the Cold War context, we need to look at the resurgent Russia and, and what is behind uh, the Kremlin's intention of developing the, the Arctic. And uh, is, it, is it just to be, you know, become a great power? 
you know, Dr. Yuval Weber, who used to be here at the, at the university, and we've talked a lot about this. And um, we've talked that what is driving Russia's militarization of the Arctic, trying to figure that out, which in turn seems to be driving, you know, other powers, other actors, the United States mainly, certainly China, and other countries or states that now are interested in the Arctic as a result. And one of the things is, is Russia's desire, we think, to, to, to maintain its status as a great power to, to, to recapture that and to develop, you know, where it can unobstructedly in the Arctic to develop its massive power, it can do so. And then it can be validated by the relationships between Russia and China, because if you're a great power and you do great power things and other great powers don't react, can you call yourself a great power? And maybe this is a way for Russia to reestablish itself as a great power. So there are similarities to, to the strategic, you know, just the, the ge geography of the Arctic, what that means, but there are also some other things that are quite different than today's strategic environment. Yep, Dr. Strauss? Yeah, if I could, I just follow up because Colonel Cole brought up uh, some, some good points there. So I, I would like to differentiate one of the other big differences here, you know, whether we perceive it as Russian aggression or not, you know, putting that aside for a moment, a difference from, say, the Cold War is the fact that these sea lanes are opening up more, right? So there will be more traffic on these sea lanes. Now, with the understanding in mind that the sea lanes on either side of the Arctic won't be open continually, annually at the same time, it all has to do with the, the shifting ice, uh, which has a lot to do with wind and, and the seas and, and, and whatnot. So it's not going to be consistent, but it does raise questions of, to go back to your original question that, I, that we started off with, Canada perceives the passage, right, that goes through the Arctic, if you look at it on a map, a lot of it goes through their territorial waters. So they see it as territorial waters and want to treat it as, as such. Uh, we, the United States, disagree with that. <laughs> Those are our allies and partners to the north. For Russia, similarly, uh, some of that passage goes through their territorial waters, and a lot of it goes through that economic exclusive zone. So from, from that perspective, you know, what are their rights as a state, and how can they legally or how should they legally deal with uh, freedom of the seas and uh, shipping that goes through that to include uh, military naval vessels from other nations, right? Uh, we, we've got rules for that. And then there's the U.S. side of the Arctic uh, with Alaska, where in a lot of cases, it's very close. The waters there are very narrow in a relative sense, right? It being, it being a strait. So I, I think a lot of that brings out a, a bigger strategic context than say the in the cold war in the 1980s or the end of the cold war that that they were dealing with it's another layer of complication but it's also what's well within the rights of those states to do in dealing with the arctic versus what is extremely aggressive and or aggressive to other actors right uh, the united states contesting these as territorial waters can be seen as aggressive right just from the other perspective. So that's, again, one of the great things I think of this conference is that these discussions I'm hoping is, are really gonna come out and, and we can have this debate, which I find, uh, and I hope others find, you know, very fascinating. Yeah, I wanna open it up to Lieutenant Colonel Kvieler and 
if you could provide your insight on how Norway is looking at this, are you drawing lessons from the Cold War period or do you see this as a new environment, a new situation because the United States and the Soviet Union, now Russia, have changed so fundamentally in the past 40 years? So I agree fully with both uh, Dr. Strauss and, and Colonel Cole here. There, there's a lot of similarities um, that we can draw from the, from the Cold War. But it's easy just to say that it's, it's more or less the same. So there, there are clearly differences as well. And maybe for Norway, the, the biggest difference is that for U.S., uh, Russia is not the main threat uh, out there. It's China. That's That's the main threat. So... Uh, the Arctic is more like a sideshow compared to what was uh, the uh, the case uh, during the Cold War, and especially in, in the end of the 70s and beginning of the 80s, when the, the Russian fleet and especially the Northern fleet was built up very rapidly. And the, um, the whole U.S. Navy strategy, the, the maritime strategy for the U.S. had to change drastically. So that became the, the, the main effort for the U.S. Navy and, and for... for uh, large parts of, uh, of the U- U.S. armed forces. Now it's, it's not the case. Uh, yes, Russia is dangerous. Uh, Russia is unpredictable. It has large capabilities. And for, for uh, Norway, that is still a threat, existential threat. Uh, for the U.S., it's not that much, even though, as, as Colonel Cole touched on, it's uh, the large quantities of uh, nuclear assets that Russia has is in, in that region. It's in the Kola region. And they, they have more or less the same concept that uh, the, the second strike, cap- strike capability or even a first strike capability because they haven't said that they just have a second strike capability. They, they can launch at any time. They have a new nuclear strategy spelling that out. Of course, that is uh, also part of the homeland defense of the U.S. with the NORAD and, and, and the, that whole issue for protecting the continental U.S. from, from strikes uh, from uh, the Bar and Sea. But our concern is, of course, that uh, this becomes a sideshow uh, and for the Marine Corps not taking seriously the force design and, and the uh, EABO concept that is applicable to the Arctic and to that region because the Uh, Russia is different from China, and the geography is different, and certainly the climate is very different. Uh, So um, if the big assumption, if it works in South China Sea, it works uh, everywhere else, I don't think so. It it needs to be proven, it needs to be tested, and you need to have equipment that actually works in that sort of uh, environment. Uh, Very different from the tropical uh, areas of uh, South China Sea. So that is some of the concerns and the, today's uh, challenges versus uh, the, the Cold War era. Great. Thank you. Well, hopefully anyone who is listening to this podcast on Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021, will be sufficiently motivated to attend the conference virtually on the 3rd and the 4th. Dr. Strauss, can you please tell our listeners how they might go about participating? How do we join virtually? Thank you. That's a... Uh... Great question, because uh, it's, it's the one everyone's hopefully concerned about. <laughs> so we do have a, a, a website that is set up on an, an UNUM site. So it's it's kind of long, actually. Uh, unum.nsin.us uh, forward slash Arctic hyphen security. We'll put that in the show notes, listeners. Thank you. <laughs> 
but that yeah that's where uh anyone can go to register in order to uh actually pick and choose from a menu of the different panels that we will be conducting on on both days and that way we can also push out uh the link to the the people that that obviously register for it uh, i know we'll be running it on webex and it should also be live streaming uh at the same time uh, the WebEx, I think, will give uh, some better connectivity and better ability to get participation uh, from our virtual audience in the symposium. The live streaming, uh, you won't be able to, you'll be able to watch it, right? But you won't be able to uh, necessarily participate in it. I can add that uh, you can also find links on um, on Facebook, uh, both on the MCU Facebook uh, page uh, and also the uh, Brute Krulak Center Facebook page, and also on the uh, the Krulak Center's the landing uh, web uh, page, uh, have links to to the symposium. So there should be several ways of uh, reaching us. Great. Yes, I would say the Krulak Center social media presence is strong. And so if anyone goes to the Krulak Center on Facebook or Twitter, I imagine at some point throughout the day, they will have tweeted or posted about the event. So the link will probably be available there too. That's great. So last question, what are you all reading right now that our listeners should know about? And it doesn't have anything to do with the Arctic necessarily, unless you that's what you would like to focus on. Colonel Cole, I will start with you. I'm reading a book by Catherine Stoner from Dr. Stoner out at Stanford. She's recently released a book called uh, Russia Resurrected. It's an examination of uh, Russia's seemingly outsized power. I mean, if you add up its economic power, its military power, it seems to be able to assert more power globally than it you know, otherwise should be able to. So it's, it's, it's a very good, very in-depth book, a little wonky but uh, um, it really answers a lot of questions that people may have. It's a great book. Great, thank you so much. Lieutenant Colonel Kviller, how about you? So I have three books going on at the same time that it's not making it easy, but uh, I've, uh, I'm reading The Leader's uh, Bookshelf by Stavridis and Ansel, and I'm pretty much halfway through that one. Also uh, an audio book, The 2033, uh, also by Stavridis and Ackerman. And because we are planning uh, a staff ride with the students at uh, to Chancesville, I'm I'm reading Stephen Sears' Chancesville at the time. A phenomenal book, Dr. Strauss. Over to you. Yeah, so I'm also reading uh, quite a few things because I've got a few different projects going all at once. So specifically for the Arctic, uh, Whitney Latgenbauer has uh, this new monograph out. It's an edited. A monograph on reconceptualizing Arctic security. So I'm looking through that. I'm also rereading Adam Tooze's uh, Wages of Destruction on uh, Nazi Germany's economic mobilization uh, during the war, which I think does a, a phenomenal job of digging into really the complexities and the problems, uh, the decision-making, the, the influences on the decision-making there, uh, which is valuable since we're talking great power competition. And then uh, in a similar vein to that, there are uh, two World War I books, and since I am a World War I historian originally, Seward uh, Livermore uh, has this old book from the, the 1960s, Politics Adjourned, on uh, Woodrow Wilson and the War Congress, which again, I think is very apropos when uh, we're talking great power competition and how we think kind of the executive and the legislative works 
that was basically Wilson complaining that politics should be adjourned because they weren't. And so the, the frictions and, and tensions there with Congress, uh, along with uh, William J. Breen's Uncle Sam at Home, which is on the civilian mobilization in the wartime of the, uh, the councils of national defense in World War I, and the uh, very localized statewide councils of national defense versus what became the national level, which actually organizationally was supposed to be on the books earlier than these, these state levels. So it's a very interesting interplay between regional local actors versus national efforts and the frictions and tensions there. Again, when we're thinking of kind of great power competition, what a, what a, what a conflict or this uh, a world war might look like, these are great reminders of that. That's really interesting. I didn't realize that there was state level formal conversations on this topic. I, I guess I have a school child's understanding of federalism and the role that state little government plays vice the role of the federal government. So that's really interesting. We're American. We love our individualism, right? We sure so, do. <laughs> yeah, that coercion versus volunteerism is a huge theme. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'm basically reading up on that. Oh, that's really interesting. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the show. To keep up with the good work of Marine Corps University, follow us on social media at at Marine Corps U. Special thanks to our intrepid producer, Jen Patya Howell, and to our show manager, Captain Michael Goff. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of Marine Corps University. <laughs>